How much do you know about Lady Bird Johnson? Yes, she was the first lady. Yes, Austin's downtown lake is named after her. Yes, we honor her when we see blue bonnets in the spring. But there was much more to this native Texan. Learn more about Lady Bird, the businesswoman, political advisor, and philanthropist in the exhibit Lady Bird, Beyond the Wildflowers at the LBJ Presidential Library. 9 to 5. Learn more at lbjlibrary.org. literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs. If you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to Austin Found. We appreciate you tuning in. I'm J.B. Hager. And I'm Michael Barnes. And we have a very special guest today. This is uh, always fun. Is The pandemic is somewhat lifted here going into the summer of 2022. Uh, we get to have guests. We didn't get to do that the first year, and this has been a real treat. This is a subject you've covered more than once. That's right. Michael, and that's the Neil Cochran House. And so... Why don't you introduce everyone to Rowena, our guest? Rowena Dash is the director of the Neil Cochran House, which is owned by the Colonial Dames, and which is no ordinary, I'm just going to say this in front of you, Rowena, is no ordinary house museum. Well, thank you. It is a generator of fresh history and an entertaining place, too. You've got a lot of events that are entertaining. I mean, it is about history, but it's also about a lot of other things. How did you get involved with this? Well, I finished up at UT in 2012. I have a PhD in uh, 19th century American art. And my husband, who's from Baltimore, I'm from Houston originally, we assumed that at some point we would leave Austin. And like so many, um, we changed our mind. <laughs> and so... Um, You're looking I, at two of them right I know, now. right? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, you know, we, we have to be careful um, who we criticize because we, we were they at one point. <laughs> um, and um, so my, my, my field is 18th and 19th century American art, visual arts. Um, and there's not a lot of that here in Austin. And That was my immediate thought. I don't mean to jump in, but my <laughs> wife grew up in Houston and her mother's an artist, and it's like Austin has has been behind on that. So oh, very behind. Yeah, uh, it was when I first moved. I actually moved here from uh, New York. I'd been living in New York after I finished college, and coming from New York to Austin in two thousand was sort of like self imposed exile <laughs> for, um, for the cultural arts, mm-hmm. and particularly the visual arts. And um, the Blanton has um, a good collection um, and a very strong collection in certain areas, but Austin do- didn't and still doesn't have the kind of encyclopedic um, opportunities yeah. that you have in Houston or New York or, or any of the, the, the larger cities on the East Coast. But then you ended up... Marvelously in a 19th century I did. masterpiece of architecture. I did. And so that that is was the best place for me to land if I was going to stay in Austin. I just got really lucky with the timing. And I have always seen myself as a historian for whom the visual arts is my medium. Mm-hmm. In other words, I use 
art as a tool for understanding culture. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the leap to a history museum, which is really what we are, a historic house museum is a history museum. And so that leap for me was perhaps not quite as great as it might be for other people who are art historians who are more formalists, for instance. You know, this this relationship makes sense immediately. A lover of (laughs) art and history. It's like Michael, I'm sure, beside himself right now. (laughs) Now, now tell us about the house. It's one of the oldest in Austin. It is. It's still standing. Why was it built? Who built it? Uh, Describe it a little bit. Sure. So we're located just um, to the west of UT at the intersection, more or less, of San Gabriel and 24th Street. Um, we remain, I'm sorry to say, one of Austin's least known cultural resources. That's changing. It is changing. It is changing. <laughs> but I actually talked to a guy last night who said, you know, I've been here for 30 years. I lived three blocks away when I was at UT. I never knew this was here. And, yeah. and we, we, we joke that uh, we could fund our endowment from Nichols from people like them. I, I, I too lived right there off 24th there and go. Leon and I didn't I, 24th and Leon. Yeah. So it, a football field from I our know, lot. I know. Yeah. Shame on me. <laughs> you live there now? No, 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 no. Oh, no, oh, in college. Oh, when you're no, in college. he's grown up now. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are a few people who still live in that That's very true. beleaguered small neighborhood who are, I, are desperately trying to hang on to to what's left. But in any case, uh yeah, so we're, we're just to the west of UT. Um, our site was developed in 1855-1856 by this young couple, uh, Washington and Mary Hill, who uh, they were 30 years old and had a one-year-old son when they took on this project. And they the early 1850s in Austin was a fascinating time to be here because, as you know, the vote had just been taken to make the capital Austin, the capital city, for the next 20 years, which at that time felt like forever, right? Mm. I mean, the city had only been founded in 1839. And so you have this building boom, and then and you also have a real sense of optimism and um, financial optimism. Well, the Hills kind of fell into a little bit of a trap in the sense that they took on uh, much more than they could afford. And they hired the only builder of note residential builder of note in Austin at the time, Abner Cook. Abner Cook takes us actually all the way back to 1839 because he was here in Austin for the first land sales in August of 1839. And, and some of his buildings are that still stand. Well, so uh, the governor's mansion. Of, um, <laughs> not a small thing. Not a small yeah. thing, which was his project that immediately preceded ours and is built. Um, our site is built on the same floor plan as the governor's mansion. We call it the gov- it's the governor's mansion on a budget. And I can I can explain <laughs> that. But also Woodlawn, which is now probably more commonly known as the Pease Mansion. And has been recently in the, in the news. Because whoever bought it from Mr. Standifer, the most recent right. oil executive and business school runner, we don't know who it is. Uh, it's well, a mystery. You know, mm. uh, um, our staff, if we're putting money on it, we've all decided that we think that it'd be great if 50 Cent owns it. So, <laughs> um, you know, and. Uh, are we breaking news here on a podcast? <laughs> no, we are so not because I know nothing. But all I know is from reading that article that it was purchased as a second home. Right. 50 Cent's first homes in Houston. And. Um, Somehow he's, his name well, got attached to it. So yeah. I don't yeah, know why anybody would want that place as a second home. That well, that part I really don't it's understand. It's a beautiful, beautiful place well, on a big piece of land. And we'll talk about that yeah. another time. But you're in the Neil Cochran house, <laughs> right. which doesn't have the, the Hill name in it. No, it doesn't. So the Hills never moved in. 
um, they ran out of money during construction and um, sold it, essentially sold on completion. And um, that's why their name isn't associated with it. It was in the early years. You find it in the papers kind of mentioned as the Mm -hmm. Hill House. But for a very long time, we knew very little about them. One of the few things we do know about the Hills is, um, and this is the first tragedy of our site history, is that as they were running out of money, they sold five enslaved people to finance the project. Mm -hmm. And so not only is our site an example of the economy of enslavement that was the, not even prevailing, it was the reality um, of life in Texas prior to the outbreak of the Civil War and even through the Civil War to the end, literally within our walls are encased the commodification of these five people. Um, it's a terrible story. Um, but it came about because they were running out of money. Yeah. Um, and that's what you did during this time period if you right. were an enslaver. I mean, the frequency with which enslaved people were um, sold um, mm-hmm. and moved from one circumstance to another is probably far greater than most people yeah. understand today. Um, and but, we're going to get back to the history of slavery and sure. its relationship to the house in a little bit. Okay, so you want me to keep going? Yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> but no, here, here's one of the things is it was way out in the country back it then. Was. West Campus was quite away from where everybody else lived. So when the Cochrans sold um, the north side of their property to the Texas Federation of Women's Clubs in 1931, it was in the deed that the Fed would pay to pave the intersection of 24th Street and San Gabriel. Mm -hmm. So if that gives you a sense of our location, even into the 1930s, where we were at that time was unpaved. It was Mm, still a growing part of the city. Of course, in 1931, Lamar Boulevard didn't even exist. So our understanding of the city of Austin um, as 21st century people bears has little bearing in many ways. Even as they paved uh, Congress Avenue and some of the highways out of town, if you wanted pavement in front of your house, you had to pay for it. I didn't know the story about the the mm-hmm. Federation of Women having to pave the intersection, yeah. but yeah, you would have to do it. And it was not until way after World War II that the city went, okay, we'll pave it anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, thinking about the terrain as you go west from there, it dips down and then way back up. Like that probably would have been the edge. Like it would, you weren't going farther west in that direction. No, you weren't. I mean, in fact, the 1887 city map, uh, Windsor, just sort of dies (laughs) just west of our property. It just sort of, that's, yeah, that that was the end of town at that point. In 1850s, there were still Native Americans coming down Shoal Creek. There were, yeah. And raiding some of them and the Comanches, I'm speaking mostly. But uh, this would, you'd be looking down on the entry of, of Native Americans into the city. Yeah, one of the old stories that used to be told before we really understood the financial circumstances of the Hills was that Mary Hill didn't want to move into the house because she was afraid of the proximity of Native people who were moving through the area. And right, in the right. 1850s and 1860s, there are references on the Pease property to people moving through that property, um, Native people who are kind of coming and going. And the Pease mm-hmm. property is, of course, just to our west. Right. And um, right. so certainly that that was still a re- I think a lot of people don't know that one of the reasons Austin is where it is today is because Lamar was specifically trying to uh, disrupt 
the movement patterns of Native people through mm-hmm. this part of Texas because this was a popular crossing point because the Colorado River was so low. And this was his way of trying to protect East Texas right. was essentially by and we're, putting we're, a fortified capital. Exactly. In, and out where here. our forts in this area were put up right. on those trails specifically for that purpose. And also beyond disrupting the, the, uh, the movement, it, it was also deep into Native American territory. So it was like right. planting a flag and saying, no, we're taking this. And so. Yeah. Lamar, not very. So because of their uh, <laughs> they're going bankrupt in the building. It, it, the house went to a, a, it was leased out first. It wasn't a it family was. moving in, correct? Uh, no, no. So they sold the property to uh, James Milton Swisher and Swante Swinson. Uh, Swisher and Swinson. It's always a fun thing to say. <laughs> who were land speculators, uh, merchants, various other things. One of them, Swinson, I believe, was a trustee for the Texas Asylum for the Blind which Governor Pease had just that year, um, August, I think, of 1856 established. He established School for the Blind, School for the Deaf, and the State Hospital. All happened in 1856 uh, as part of his kind of progressive campaign. And while they were waiting for their own property to be completed, which is now known as the Nowatney Building, it's the headquarters for the Briscoe Center, um, just north of the Irwin Center, the School for the Blind was at our site for two years. So they were the first occupants, were um, students and teachers for the Asylum for the Blind. After that point, we were empty for a bit. And then the lieutenant governor during the Civil War, Fletcher Stockdale, had a lease-to-own agreement with Swisher and Swenson and was living in um, at our site 1863 to uh, August of 1865 when um, Stockdale is the one who hands essentially the keys to Texas over to Andrew Hamilton, who became the provisional governor during Reconstruction. One of the things we just learned, I mean, this week, is that Stockdale's wife died in April of 1865 in the house. Um, And we had had never... Stockdale's one of the lesser known uh, (laughs) political figures of Texas, and uh, we're working to, to figure out a bit about him. He and his wife had no children. He had children with a second wife. So anyway, it was just the two of them, plus presumably whoever enslaved they brought with them to the right. house because he they had property down near Matagorda Bay, mm-hmm. and um, that's where the majority of his holdings were. Right. Um, but while they were in the house, it would have been them plus enslaved people. So when did the Neals buy it? 1876. Okay. So By the way, a little little clarity for people, because it's, it's easy to say Neil Cochran as if that's a, a person. Yes. Yeah. And, the, and this it's man, two different surnames. They yeah. are two different surnames. This man walked in one day and he said, my name's Neil Cochran and it's my birthday. <laughs> and, and I said, well, it's so nice because people always ask who Neil Cochran is. And he did come once um, and he said, I wanted to come here on my birthday. I just, and I, I, again, before you go into more of this, it just, it's so weird to me to think in the late 1800s or whatever going, oh yeah, I'd lease a house in West Campus. <laughs> like I, so we were a leasing, rental before was it was leasing cool. common then? Like, that's just an interesting thing. Yeah, you know, it, it is. Less common than now. But there were these people who were essentially land speculators who amassed all kinds of property all, all over town. And and so, yeah, there, there were those who would lease from them. The Neals moved into our property, we believe, because they had wealth, and Andrew Neal was older. He was in his 60s by the time he moved in. Presumably just didn't want to take on a project. 
but we were out of town, as as you point out, and until the establishment of the university um, in 1884. Really, there was not much reason to be out where we were. And again, you've got the dirt, muddy roads. I mean, to, just to get to the capital, those two miles away was a bit of a trek. So it's kind of odd that the Neals moved out there from that standpoint. But there wasn't a lot of housing inventory. I mean, we're less than we're just over ten years from the end of the Civil War. Not a lot happened in Austin in the five years after the war. I mean, it took a while to really begin to to grow the city again. So there wasn't a lot of inventory for them to choose And it from. wasn't until 1871 that, that the, the railroad, railroad came yeah. in and brought building materials that right. had no access to before that. And, that, and, and also economic opportunity, right? right? At, so, at this time you're talking about, how pristine was the house? Was it complete? Well, no. That's the uh, interesting thing. So for one thing, we think the house was never completed. If you, <laughs> if you look at the exterior, so the house is built of limestone rubble. And that is essentially a nice way of saying – broken up rock it's not nice finished ashlar limestone uh, blocks and and so the structures built of that type of material tended to be at that time period commercial use and even in commercial use if they had the ability to do it they would put a brick veneer in the front of it to make it look really finished Mm -hmm. so what we think is that um, probably the house was originally intended to be plastered and scored so it would look like more finished limestone um, and that's exactly what happened with the General Land Office building, which is 1857. It's one year younger than us. And it is, as well, limestone rubble, but it's got a um, I didn't know that. faux hmm. finish. Yeah, it, wow. and they, re- they they redid it at some point in the last 20 years. And there's some really great photos showing um, cool. some of the limestone underneath the uh, plaster. Are, are you like my wife? When people walk in, she apologizes for what's not finished. And I'm like, <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> Don't, Where we are. <laughs> no, and in fact, it looks lovely as it is. It does, and well, and, become and unusual. Yeah. But the reason it looks unusual is we think that this was one hmm. way in which it shows that the hills never really quite completed the project. On the interior, it is plastered. We did paint analysis at one point and determined that the plaster had never been painted. The millwork had been painted. And so what we think is because we know the Cochran's had wallpaper. They're the next family. They're the next family. It is very likely that the Neals also papered the house. And so they painted the millwork, but there was wallpaper throughout the house. And so that first 20 years, while it's a rental, probably it was just bare, kind of creamish colored plaster walls. I mean, certainly the walls, very thick, 18 inch thick limestone Mm. with an inch of true plaster um, on the inside of it. And so, yeah, we, we don't think that um, those first 20 years, it probably ever really looked finished, so to speak. Hmm. When did yeah. the Cochran's move in? 1893. That's late. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew Neal died in 1883. And then his wife and children remained in the house with various other people uh, over the next decade. Um, but then the Cochran's moved in. They actually purchased the property in 1895. So they rented for two years, purchased the property, and then they were there for over 60 years. So they, by far, were the family of longest standing on the, on the property. But then the reason the names, I mean, it didn't make sense to really name the property after one of these kind of meandering 
printers. And so you get to the Neils and the Cochrans, and they were both there long enough, and we know enough about them to really be able to tell their stories. Because Mary Cochran, who grew yes. up there, yes. is still alive she and is. living in Westminster. I know. And how, how old is she? She's got to be She's 90s. 96. 96. And she is a firecracker. Yep. She is. Born on Veterans Day, um, which ah. is which is so appropriate for her and helpful to me because it's, it's always easy to remember her birthday because <laughs> I know it's Veterans Day. But um, she's incredible. Uh, she was born in 1926 in the house. Hmm. Actually, yeah, actually, she was she born in the house? Or did you say she was born at St. David's? I think she was born at St. David's, but not in the house. But she came home. To, she and her sister were both born in Austin and then um, and raised in the house for several years. Um, and then they were in Orange for a few years. Uh, and then came back and lived in the house the second half of the Depression. Uh, they were living in the house with her grandmother. And she's absolutely incredible, tells wonderful stories, as you know, and has so much love for that space. Her great-grandchildren actually were at the museum. We do an event every year right before Easter, uh, dyeing eggs. We don't mm-hmm. hunt eggs. We just dye them. <laughs> and uh, seeing them kind of playing on the front porch and uh, messing around with the columns, which she tells stories about um, when she was a kid, naming mm-hmm. the columns and playing games around the columns was just really special. Yeah. yeah. I think you alluded to it. It was not just that house. It was up and down that street that, that she was witness to. Yeah. Planting trees and right. everything that still exists today. Well, one of the neat stories is that the Adams Extract Company was founded in the house. It's now a brick condominium thing um, at the corner of 23rd and Sam Gabriel. It was literally the next door neighbor. She tells stories about the whole neighborhood would smell like vanilla when they were bottling. <laughs> it's not a bad smell. No, it's a great smell. I mean, because that's come up on the show. That was one of the first larger companies in town, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, Adam Thatcher. And then it had that beautiful, gorgeous building, modernist building out yeah. where South Meadows is now. It's gone, and the company moved to Gonzales. So losing that building was really yeah, it was that tough. was really tragic. And the neighborhood kids would get called in to help to bottle the, oh, the wow. stuff during the period of time when, when Mary was a child. And how long did she live there? Well, she was in and out um, throughout her whole childhood because even after she, so she um, ended up in Buda, but came in to town practically every day. And so she was in and out of her grandmother's home all throughout her childhood. So she lived there for the first couple of years of life. And then for about five years when she was a tween, I guess. And then she was back and forth after that. It was sold, the last member of the family who owned the house sold it in 1958, right after Mary got married. So, you know, so she was still it go directly woman. to the Colonial Dames? It did, yeah. yeah. What exactly is that organization? Sure. It's, it's a women's lineage group. It's national, something like 15,000 members around the country. But each state is kind of an independent affiliate. So each state manages its own business. So it's not that... The national organization in Washington, D.C. isn't involved in what we do. It's women who trace their lineage back to people from the colonial period who were in some way, shape, or form involved in public service. Um, and they're working right now on accepting more female ancestors, um, the biggest challenge to which is that there weren't a lot of opportunities for women to be involved in public service in colonial America. Um, so, for instance, John Adams qualifies, but Abigail doesn't, even though oh. the woman sure should qualify, wow. right? But there's no legal paperwork showing 
what she did. Her letters alone. Her letters alone should be good enough. Um, But midwives are being accepted now uh, because they had to register with the towns they were in, that sort of thing. So they're they're, they're working on it. But it's a they have a mission in historic preservation, patriotic service and education. And. We're their headquarters and um, in, Texas. in Texas, and we're the way in which they satisfy all of those missions. The patriotic service piece, well, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but it's considered a patriotic service to even be teaching American history right now. So <laughs> that's me. We also host youth naturalization ceremonies, um, which has been really oh. wonderful to do. And we do those quarterly. Uh, it took a long time to get through the USCIS system, mm. but now, now we're an established site, and it's really wonderful to be able to be a part of mm-hmm. new American citizens taking that step. Going back for just a bit to Mary, mm-hmm. Mary is Mary Cochran Bowles. Yes. And she uh, became a CPA. She did. And she was very involved in in lots of projects in town, including the Colonial Dames. Mm-hmm. And she uh, also, her husband, Everett Bowles, who is from the Bee Cave Bowles, not the Pflugerville right. Bowles. I met her years ago uh, doing the Ladybird Legacies project because we were raising money to buy seeds in honor of of a ladybird who had recently died and to you know give them to the highway department to spread on certain parts of of the hi- next to the highways and the Bowles family donated a nice amount of money and, and at their request we uh, did the whole side of Mopac, and then they expanded Mopac and took away all of the wildflowers no. that we had. Oh, oh no! I, I was going to ask her the the you know the descendants of those wildflowers still living on on Mopac. I, I I believe in in patches, but you know the the, the whole part that goes along Clarksville uh-huh. was pushed oh, right. back, and so yeah, but. Getting to know her again, because you introduced us again, related to the museum. I just have to tell this one story, and then I'll um, – <laughs> is that when I was being given a tour by her, and I had a videographer along, uh, Mary Cochran Bowles, 90-whatever at the time, she tells me that she used to slide down the banister in the central hallway – and I said, could you show us? I was joking. <laughs> I, I did not. the clip. You, were, you almost <laughs> wanted to stop her. <laughs> I, I was, no, no, no. She marches up the stairs, hikes it. herself up over the banister, and slides da- all the way down. And I love your line. <laughs> your line was, say what you said. <laughs> I, I said, well, apparently I said, the Colonial Dames told you not to do that, which I don't remember saying. But in the video, you hear me say, that didn't happen because I didn't know it was being videoed. I just thought she was taking pictures. I had no idea the whole thing. Had I been get videoed. the sense she does this periodically. Oh, and yeah. she, she, it was not it was not entirely unanticipated by me that that might happen. But um, the challenging part, though, was. I don't know if you remember this, getting her off of it. Oh, yeah. She was fine coming down, but but getting over the newel post was awkward. And that was the moment where I thought, oh, dear Lord. Well, we had a happy reunion not right before the pandemic when I was lunching with another uh, a source of mine at Westminster Retirement mm-hmm. Home. And she got a big hug and laughs and everything. I just adore her. Oh, she's one of the, one of the great human beings um, that any of us will ever know. When you look, I actually saw her earlier this week, and I said, you know, 
what you've lived through, the, right. the changes you've seen. And this all mm-hmm. came about because we have a book club um, at the museum and she was trying to download the book to her Kindle and the, um, the, the Wi-Fi was just not working and she handed it to me and I keep punching on it and it won't <laughs> do anything. But, you know, she was born in 1926. Right. She didn't, you know, she still remembers first seeing comedy on television that when they mm. finally got a television yeah. and here she is with me struggling to download a book <laughs> to her kindle fire it's right. it, it, it she is the most with it human being i can think of and rolls with every punch i mean right. she i if she had the opportunity to she probably would you know is travel to mars <laughs> any, any clue in the time you spent with her what because you always ask older people what's your secret what have you picked up on anything is did she maybe stay she stayed very involved in, in she the has, yes you know maybe um, that's a part of it i i i would say she's just she loves life and loves people and is interested in absolutely everything yeah. and so i think i mean i have not asked her what her secret is but I would say that I think that's what her secret is. is she's that, still as curious. I mean, as when she was everyone. 90 years old, she took a cruise around the world for her 90th birthday. <laughs> um, my, my favorite Mary Bowles story is um, this is before I, I, I knew her before I was hired. And this is in 2011. I actually looked this up the other day and found it on NPR. I'm driving down Lamar at three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon, listening to All Things Considered. And Robert Siegel is in Tunisia. And this is at that time where there was all that unrest and in the Middle East. And so they'd gone to see what the impact on tourism was. And so he's talking to people in a uh, vendors in a, in a market. And then he goes out to Carthage and he talks to this tour guide about taking people through and how far fewer tourists there are. And he turns and he says, so I'm with this group of 10 tourists. And here is Miss Mary Bowles of Austin, <laughs> Texas. I swear to you. <laughs> I almost drove my car into Shoal Creek because this is all th- this isn't the local news. I mean, this is all things considered. And uh, I didn't know she was there. But and then, and he said, so what happened? And he, he said, well, you know, people made fun of us, but we had our tickets. So we came. Mary. And that's her. That is who she is. Mary Cochran Bowles grew up in the the Neil Cochran house yep. that you're the director of. And she has lived a life. She has lived a life and uh, continues to love us. All right, Rowena, we're going to, you're so fascinating and you have so much to talk about. We're going to take a break on this episode. We try to keep them bite-sized for people, maybe to catch on their commute or something. But we'll come back with another episode because I really, I want to dig into when it transitioned to becoming a museum. Sure. What that looks like, what it looks like today. But then also another passion of yours that you've written about is the slave history of Austin. Right. And what's going on with the house that's at. It may be one of the last standing. The uh, only intact slave dwelling. We'll get into that. I want to hear more about that. That's fascinating because we've talked about a lot of this subject matter on the show. So we're going to be back on the next episode with more with Rowena Dash and the Neil Cochran House. Thanks for tuning in. Happy trails. Happy trails.